Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Julie Henrik is the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I'm really delighted to welcome Sherry Harris to the podcast today. Sherry is the Agatha Award-nominated author of the Sarah Winston Garage Sale Mystery Series and the Chloe Jackson Sea Glass Saloon Mystery Series. The um, Chloe Jackson series is set in the panhandle of Florida. A new book just came out, A Time to Swill. She's the past president of Sisters in Crime and a member of, a member of Mystery Writers of America. She loves books, beaches, bars, garage sales, and Westies, not necessarily in that order. She's also a patent-holding inventor. Welcome to the podcast, Sherry. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm delighted. I mean, as a, a past president, we're going to talk about Sisters in Crime, especially as we're in our 35th year. Um, but I want to talk about your writing journey uh, from the beginning, as I usually do in here. Uh When did you decide you wanted to be a writer and write a book? I have always loved writing. When I was a kid, my favorite books were the Betsy Tacey books by Maud Hart Lovelace. And Betsy wanted to be a writer and I wanted to be Betsy. So I always wanted to be a writer. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. So, um, you know, I did the yearbook in high school and then I was in marketing Uh, at one point in my life. And then I married my husband, who was in the Air Force. We started traveling all over the place. It was very hard to have a career. And so in our second assignment in Dayton, Ohio, there was an ad to write a short story for a contest. And I thought, oh, I should try that. So I did. And I started writing the short story, but I just kept writing And pretty soon I realized I was writing a novel instead of a short story. (laughs) Um, So a few short story writers have that moment. Was that a crime novel or a crime story? Or was it a, a, you know, another genre of short story? No, it was a crime novel about a woman in Seattle, an Air Force wife, who was um, a gemologist. And this woman, this homeless woman brings in a necklace that's very valuable. And my protagonist um, tries to figure out why she would have this. And then the homeless woman dies. So yeah, I was writing crime fiction even then. And did you ever think about another type of fiction to write or has it always been crime? It's always been crime fiction. My house was filled with mysteries and romantic suspense and thrillers and my family passed books to each other and so um I really never thought about writing anything else at that point and so talk to me about how you developed your craft um with writing did you take classes have did you learn by writing you know go to conferences so how did you learn the craft um Yeah, I definitely started out by going to conferences. 
So our third assignment was in Monterey, California. And there was this little conference um, with this group of people from San Luis Obispo. And I saw it and I signed up and there was probably 40 people there. And I went and you got to read like 10 pages or something. And I listened to all these people read and then it was my turn and I read. And as I was reading, I was going, oh my gosh, this is so terrible. This is awful. I can't believe I'm reading this, but they were very kind. Thank heavens. And pointed out the good stuff about it and, you know, commented on what, what needed to be fixed. But I, I always wonder if I hadn't been with that group of people that encouraged me um, if I would have given up. Right. So, and then I've taken lots of classes, gone to other writing conferences and um, read, read, read in the crime fiction world. So um, it took me a long time to get published. Well, I've talked to people about how this a few times, how brave it is to put your work out into the world. So you were very brave to get up in front of 40 people and read 10 pages of your first novel. Were, was everybody at that same place or were there people who this was, they were had written other novels? Was it specifically for first time novelists? No, it was um, this thriving writing group. Oh, I can't remember the name. The lady that wrote the book, Pay It Forward was there. I, I'm so sorry, I can't think of her name. Um, there was a well-known children's author there. Uh, I made friends, you know, with some of the other people that were there, thriller writers, and some of them were published, some of them weren't. Um, they were almost all at a much higher level than I was at that point. My, my first 10 pages were all backstory and description. And they couldn't even figure out what the story, they had no idea it was crime fiction. They thought it was a story about these two sisters. Oh. <laughs> well, you, your first book, you're learning how to write a book. Right. And you worked on that first book uh, for a long time. I did. I did. And I have those first pages still tucked away in the closet. And then I have a much later version of that. And, and it, it's just so much better, so much better. And you, you know, you worked on that. You went the gemology series. You, um, you went to conferences with that. That was, you know, you and I met at a conference. And you pitched it at Crime Bank. You did, you know, you got it out there a lot. Um, and what did that whole experience teach you about? Uh, persisting and perseverance. You have to be persistent. Um, you get a lot of no's. I, I still have stacks of rejection letters from when you used to send them in. They send you a written one back with your self-addressed stamped envelope. And um, <laughs> the very worst one was like a torn off mimeographed sheet that somebody had stepped on. So <laughs> <laughs> that was the worst rejection. The best ones are, I like this. It's got this and this and this, but it's not for me, you know? Um, so you do have to be persistent. Also, 
I really firmly believe I was sending that book out way before it was ready to be sent out. And so I burned burned bridges. I um, met Meg Ruley at um, Malice one year. We were checking up in at the same time and there was a screw up with both of our rooms. So we started chatting and she said, oh, well, send me your book. And um, they rejected it as they should have. (laughs) But um, so you, you have to know when it's your moment a little bit. You have to be a little bit wise about if your work is actually ready or not. And, and how would you suggest people figure that out? Because it's very hard when you're on the inside. Yeah. Well, heck, I don't know if I, I can tell you that. You, you have to keep editing and writing and, and make sure that it's in um, good enough shape that it'll pique somebody's interest without boring them that it has a unique voice, which is probably one of the hardest things I think you have to learn. And also uh, having other people read it or reading it aloud as you did are are really helpful, difficult, but helpful exercises. Right, I agree. Having other people read it is probably key, but you have to have other people read it that are better writers than you are, I think. Yeah. So- and and don't necessarily love you and and yeah. just tell you you're wonderful just because they don't want you to fail. You yeah. need somebody who can also be honest with you. I, I have a few writing friends that say that like their mom will read it and can actually critique it and give them good feedback. My mom would just tell me I was wonderful. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's not super helpful. Right? <laughs> Um, on the journey, you know, you've gotten all kinds of advice, I'm sure. What's the best piece of writing advice you've gotten and the worst piece? Oh, the worst piece. The best piece, and I'm sure other people have said this, but I was going to this writing conference in the Panhandle of Florida, and um, John Dufresne was teaching a class, and he's with Florida International University and is an amazing writer and has an amazing has a couple of amazing books about writing out and his was sit your butt in the chair. And um, that just making a commitment to writing is, Mm -hmm. is important and finding a method that works for you. I'm going to write 500 words a day. I'm going to write a thousand words a day. I'm going to do this. I'm going to write every day. It doesn't matter how many words. Um, Write a scene a day. I mean, whatever it is. Right. Exactly. The worst writing advice is you have to do it this way. You're not a writer. If you don't write every day, you have to plot, you have to do this. You have to do that. You have to find out what works for you. Um, I don't plot very much and I guess it's working. Okay. (laughs) But um, I just, there's just no one method that works for every person. How do you deal with writer's block or do you believe in writer's block? I I really don't believe in it. And again, that came a long time ago from John Dufresne. Um, he, He didn't believe in it. And one of the things that I loved that he said to do was, if you get stuck, 
And, and I believe writer's block is fear that you're afraid you're not going to write something good. You're afraid the next book won't be as good as the last book. You're, you just let that editor in your head take over. And I, I experienced that with every book. But one of the things John said to do was to just, if you get stuck, look around, write down everything your protagonist can see, can smell, can is feeling. Um, it, use all the five senses, record all that, and it almost always gets me unstuck. Almost always. And, I, you know, you throw out half of it because it's not needed. But I remember literally in that first book, my protagonist was under a tree and stuck, just stuck. Her feet were actually in the mud and I couldn't figure out what was going to happen next. And I just did exactly what he said and boom, she's moving again. So. That's great. That's awesome advice. I, um, you know, when we're talking about writer's block and getting unstuck, you, you worked on this first book or this first series for a long time, but then um, you, let's talk about publishing. You got um, the opportunity to write the Sarah Winston series, which is about garage sales for Kensington. Mm -hmm. So this was, tell us about that. Tell us about that and your publishing journey. Okay, so I was at Crime Bake and um, Barb Ross literally pushed me at her agent, John Talbot, when he was free, to pitch the Sarah or to pitch my gemology series. And he said, um, yeah, no, I don't think so. What else you got? Well, I didn't have anything else. And he said, well, what hobbies do you have? And I was kind of like, I read. And, <laughs> and I just gently backed away from him. But two weeks later, Ross writes me and says, her agent got hold of her and this editor at Kensington, Gary Goldstein, wanted somebody to write a garage sale series. And would I be interested in submitting a proposal for it? And I told Barb I needed to think it over. And the next morning I woke up and went, oh, my God, of course, I want to write this series if I can. And so she um, got me in touch with John. He said they wanted a proposal fast. I had no idea what that meant, but four days later, I had written the proposal in the first three chapters of that book, and it all just poured out of me like magic. It was the best writing of my entire life, but the best writing experience, let me say that. So, Because you'd, you'd learned how to write a book with the Gemology series and, right. and probably learned it over and over again as you were getting that ready to go. Um, but writing the proposal for Cozy's, uh, that's not an unheard of way for Cozy's to get a contract, is to write a proposal which includes um, comparable titles, synopsis, you know, ideas for the first three books, character sketches, and then the first 40 pages or 50 pages right. or whatever. Right. Um, but you had to come up with, with garage, you know, you had garage sales, but everything else had to come from you and you had to figure out something that would support a series. Yeah. Right. And it, like I said, it was magic. And I did 
borrow some from the gemology series. Um, it was an Air Force wife, recently divorced. Both of that was the same. But from there, they were very different people and lived in the gemology series was set in Seattle and the Sarah Winston series is set in New England and Massachusetts. And, um, but there was, there are some nods to all that writing. I did two and a half books, two and a half lousy books. I might have. <laughs> but the, again, it's the best way to learn how to write is to write a book. Yes. Um, and so Sarah uh, was, how old, she was in her 30s was, when you started the series? Yes, 38 with the first. And, and it was, uh, it the series, nine books, three years in, yeah. in book time? It's actually two years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot of murders in a small town <laughs> <laughs> in two years. <laughs> But the garage sales, uh, you know, it's an interesting hook because, again, in Cozy's, um, you need to have some sort of a hook. But that's a pretty interesting, fun way to explore something for her to do. It is. And it gave her lots of opportunities to be in people's houses and be snoopy and um, find out things about people she might not have otherwise you know I remember in one of the books she was in somebody's closet and she pulls down a box of stuff that you know is kind of shocking to her and so um, it was a good way for her to be in a lot of different environments. So your publishing journey started with a friend introducing you to her agent at a um, at a conference, but, um, you know, this business, those kinds of opportunities, the networking that you do through conferences or through organizations and things are really important ways to connect with people because by meeting John at this conference, he knew you so that when you came up in a conversation, he could make that connection. Agreed. Agreed. I, I, I think um, it's really important. I know some people do it on their own within this vacuum, but I can't imagine that. And I, and I can't imagine being published without a support system of other writers to, um, you know, say, oh yeah, that happened to me or celebrate your joys and, and weep with you over the sad things. What do you wish you'd known earlier in your publishing journey that you know now? Oh, gosh, that's such a great question. And I'm not sure what the answer to that is. I think that you don't have very much control. You have control of the writing, but you don't have much control of anything else. You know, it's up, it's up to the publisher to to um, help you market the book. And I mean, you have to do most of it your own, but they have to get it in stores. And um, so you don't have a lot of control over a lot of things. Yeah, it's a business, I mean, right. for sure. Exactly. Um, are you, so you now you've got Chloe um, series, Panhandle, different. How did you, how did, how did you make that switch into another character and find her as well? 
I wanted to make Chloe as different as I could from Sarah. Uh, so she's 28 years old and she's single. Um, she is new to the panhandle. So she grew up in Chicago and lived there all her life, went to college there, had her job at the library there. And so, because I really love those fish out of water stories, you know, where she's in this completely different culture and I lived in the panhandle. So I know it's very different culture than the Midwest one that I grew up in um, with all the good and bad that comes with those things. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I just wanted her to be, she's really into water sports. She jogs, she loves to cook. Um, Sarah hated to cook and just make fluffer nutters to get by if somebody wasn't feeding her. So. And you, you know, when you're writing your first book or your first two and a half books that are in a draw, um, you've got time. There's no contract. There's no, you know, deadline. Nobody cares if you finish it. I mean, that sounds brutal and hard, but it's true. Nobody cares if you finish the book. Um your mom cares and your friends care, but you no, you no, really got to motivate yourself. Right, right. Once you've got contracts, you know, you're working on what will be your 13th novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got deadlines. And so it's it, the luxury of taking time or exploring or waiting for the muse to show up isn't part of the game anymore because you've got to get this book written. Has that changed your writing process? Um, Yes. I mean, you know, it's, it's more of a job now, a great job and a a joy filled job most of the time, but you do have to, you know, instead of going, oh, well, I'm going to go out with my friend and go shopping today, back in the days when we could do that. You know, now you have to discipline yourself to, I better stay home and write Mm -hmm. because I got to get this messy first draft done. So I have something to, to improve. Yeah, it's, um, it's a different, you've got to prioritize your life differently. You know, not that you don't prioritize your writing before you're published, but you you really need to right. stick with it so right. that you can meet these deadlines. So Sherry, deadlines. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know that you're also an editor. You help people with their books. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's your writing process like and how do you help people with their writing process? Oh, that's another interesting question. My writing process is... Um, pretty messy. <laughs> so for example, um, my editor only makes me turn in a couple of paragraphs of what, about what the next book is going to be about. Whereas a lot of editors require something much more detailed. And so I usually have this vague idea in my head of what the story is going to be about. Um, I have done some plotting sessions with our friend Jessica Ellicott, and she's really good at focusing in on things, and that's been helpful. Sometimes I have an idea what the beginning is, and I just start writing, and in the middle of it, I'll just, the end will come to me, and so I skip ahead and write the end. I will never forget the look of horror on your face when I told you that one day when I said I was writing the end and said, good, you're almost done. (laughs) 
said, no, I have to go right the middle. <laughs> I think it almost made you physically ill to think somebody would write like that. <laughs> um, so my process is messy. There's, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, there's no one way to write a book. How do you help people when you're editing? Because that's a different hat. That's a different skill set. Yeah, I, you know, um, I don't know. I, I just read and, you know, look where there's too much description or a lot of times I can tell that there's a movie playing in the person's head that they're seeing, but they're not getting down on the page. So I help them try to fill in those blanks that, that I know they see, but they just didn't get on the page. I think that is probably my biggest thing to when I'm editing for somebody is looking at those things. And, you know, as a writer, you, you benefit from good editing, but as a, as a editor, you can't write somebody's, a good editor doesn't write somebody's book for them. Right. Right. They help them write a better book. Yes. Yeah. And that's a subtle difference. Yeah. So like if I think, especially if I've worked with someone over a few books, I think, you know, like, oh, your character wouldn't say this or wouldn't act this way, or, you know, they're doing something different than they normally would. Now, if it's part of a growth process, that might be a good thing, but it also can be like, no, no, you can't let your character do this. Unless you deliberately think about why they're doing it this way and then find the justification for it. Right. Yeah. Such a, um, such a nuance. And especially when you're writing a series, um, did you find that you wanted Sarah or now Chloe to do things differently than, you know, if you could go back and restart Sarah, would you have started it differently? I wouldn't have changed very much. So with Sarah, I had a contract for three books. And if I thought I was going to have more when I turned in the third book, I would have ended that book differently than I did. Yeah. But um, because I thought it was ending at three books, it, it seemed like the most satisfying ending for her journey to that point. So. Yeah. And for people who read her series, you'll know you'll know what happened in book three that gets unhappened in book four. So um, I know that you get a lot of mail about that yeah. still. So I made a lot of people mad, but I made a lot of people happy too. So. Well, this is, again, publishing and writing is, you know, you never know if your contract's going to get renewed. So how much do I wrap up? Right. Right. <laughs> like, what am I going to do here? So Cher, you were the president of Sisters in Crime in 2019 to 2020. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah. We're both, you know, right. both good looks on our faces. Um, <laughs> and uh, you were Kendall Lynn's vice president and Laurie Rader Day was your vice president. Yes. So the way Sisters in Crime works is, you know, um, the vice president is the um, is the next president. So it's, it's a, you know, it's a, and then you serve on the board for another year as immediate past president. So you served on the board for three years. Um, what is sisters in crime meant to you as a writer? 
everything. I mean, it's meant everything to me. As as you mentioned, we met at um, the Malice Domestic Banquet. We just randomly got set by at the same table. And um, we were getting stationed in Boston, well, in Massachusetts that summer. And I didn't know a single soul. And you were said, well, I'm from the Boston area. And you have to go and join Sisters in Crime. And you have to, the New England chapter, and you have to go to Crime Bake. And honestly, Julie, those two things totally changed my trajectory as a writer because um, of the people I met and, and the things I learned from the people I met and the things I learned at Crime Bake and all those scary times we stood in line together to go pitch <laughs> to all those scary agents. <laughs> and um, so Sisters in Crime, I say that in my first acknowledgement that I don't think I would have been published if it wasn't for joining Sisters in Crime. Well, again, you've certainly given back to the organization. You were the president of the Chessie chapter, which is in the Chesapeake Bay area. Um, and, uh, you know, learned a lot. Chapter leadership is a huge role that so many people play. We, uh, Sisters in Crime just approved its 60th chapter. Oh, that's so exciting. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's there are a lot of people who are dedicating a lot of time to being um, in chapter leadership and to supporting the chapters, right. um, as well as the volunteers on the national level. Um, but the, the, what was it like to be president? You know, you moved from New England down to Virginia. What was it like to, to sort of take over leadership in its Chessie chapter, which is a strong chapter? Um, it was <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> Donna Andrews and Marsha Talley called me and said, can you come? We were at BauscherCon in Raleigh. Can you come meet with us? And I was like, sure. And I, I thought, oh, they probably want me to work on publicity or something for the chapter. And they're like, oh, will you be president? And I was like, what? <laughs> and then I did the whole let me think about it thing. And then, of course, I said yes. And it was such an honor. And we have such a talented group of people in our chapter and it's a big chapter. And, um, it's just, I learned so much from getting to work with all the different authors and writers and people that were hoping to become writers. Sherry Randall, for example, was in that chapter. And, you know, we both had the, the want to get published twinkle in our, I guess I was I already had my contract by then, but, um, you know, and just learning about the dynamics of the organization and trying to help people um, help themselves and giving them a lift up when you could. So being a chapter president was great. And then you became um, national president. And, you know, that's a, um, a big role and there's a lot of responsibility. What are you most proud of from your time as president? Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> um, I led the effort to rewrite our bylaws and um, decoupled them from being having to have an annual meeting at BoucherCon and um, being able to do them online instead of in person, <laughs> which was just fate that that. 
I had that idea that we should do that. And then also um, had COVID, which made it, you know, I don't know what would have happened. So I know. Well, and also Bouchercon changes dates. So some people serve for 14 months right. and some people serve for nine. And now it's October 1st through September 30th. And yep. it's, you know, we know when the transition is going to happen and um, people will be able to um, look at who's um, running, um, you know, in August, and then they vote in the first two weeks of September and all of that stuff happens, which is really helpful. Right. Because I was one of the 14 month people and, uh, it was, it was wonderful. I mean, I had so many just wonderful things happening and gosh, when I'd go to conferences, so many lovely people would come up and thank me for being president and, you know, tell you you're doing a good job and all that stuff, but it, it was a lot of work too. Yeah, absolutely. And part of what you did during that time is, is work on the transition from Beth Watson, who'd been president for, uh, sorry, been um, uh, executive director for 28 years. I mean, really was the first employee and the only employee for most of Sisters in Crime's history to, um, a new management structure, a structure that eventually um, I, I came in on, but um, re- you know, in making that kind of huge change for an organization, it's also a, an opportunity to rethink what the organization's going to be in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and also trying to keep our historical past as part of that and honoring yeah. all those as presidents and board members that have gone before us and put in the work to bring the organization to where it was when I was president, and then how to continue that forward. One of the strengths of Sisters in Crime, I think, is that we started as an advocacy organization. Mm -hmm. So the conversation started in 1986. In 1987, we became an organization. Um, But it was always about advocacy and about lifting up voices. And, and, you know, it was about lifting up specifically women's voices in crime writing um, then. But we've expanded the tent and and, uh, it really made it um, so that we're lifting up all different voices for crime writers of color, for LBGTQIA plus writers. Um, And every president has an immediate past president project. Mm -hmm. Say that fast three times. (laughs) And uh, yours was to create what it became the Pride Award. Can you talk a little bit about that award? The first one um, took place this last, uh, this year, this past spring. Um, The next one will be, uh, submissions will be open in February and March of 2022. And, you know, if you're listening to this in the future, check the website um, and you can find out when the dates are. But can you talk about the Pride Award and what made you choose that to be your project? Sure. So before I ever had any idea I'd ever be president of Sisters in Crime, I was at Sync Integrate Writing in um, at BoucherCon in New Orleans, and it was on diversity. And one of the speakers was Greg Heron, and he talked about how much of his career his books had been in a different section. His crime fiction had been in a different section in the bookstore than where my crime fiction would be. And 
that just sunk into my heart and made me sad and horrified. And so when um, I became vice president and I realized someday I would have to do a project um, and panicked, you know, I, I just started thinking a lot about where could I make an impact? What, what did or our organization could make the impact? What did I love that our organization was doing? And I love the Eleanor Taylor Bland Award for Emerging Crime Writers of Color. And I thought, oh, if we could lift up somebody from the LBGTQIA plus community in the same way, that would be doing something good and meaningful. And I was so thrilled when I presented the idea to the board that the board also said, yes, let's do that. And with the award, there's a cash award for the person who wins, um, but there's also mentorship. Um, you know, this year there was mentorship for five of the runners up, which is also um, huge. Um, and an opportunity, you know, to, to, again, this is for emerging writers. So, um, you know, they don't have tons of books or they're looking for an agent or wherever they are, but it's um, lots of opportunities to really help them get better by getting support in a lot of different ways. Right, right. I know that our Eleanor Taylor Bland, a couple of our winners have um, like Mia Manansala has, you know, her first book out, Adobe and Arsenic, Arsenic and Adobe. Arsenic and Adobe. Yeah. Arsenic and Adobe. And um, the and Yasmin Ogoe, who is the last year's uh, winner, has her book coming out in October of 2021 and already has a TV deal for it. I know. It's so exciting. So exciting. Yes, so I exciting. Hope that happens with our Pride Award too. Yeah. No, it's a it's a wonderful legacy. Um, and you know, to be clear, you know, when you're talking about being in a separate section in a bookstore, the reason that's a problem is um is that if it's great to have an LBGTQIA section in a bookstore, but also put those books in the crime fiction section because people, you know, browse and they right. look around. And if they can't find your book easily, then you're missing an opportunity. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's a great reason to um, to make that change for sure. Um, well, I'm for one glad that you're involved with Sisters in Crime and you have been for so long. So as we're closing, uh, you read a lot and you read a lot in the different genres. Do you want to toss out a couple of things you're reading right now? Sure. I just finished The Never Game by Jeffrey Deaver, which I absolutely loved. It was a really good action thriller. And I'm getting ready to read Esme Addison's second book in her Enchanted Bay series. It's the Hex for Danger. So, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. That's what I'm reading. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great to talk to you. It is always great to talk to you. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. 
We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Thank you.